0: We're working towards building people's control of the government, building community control of the economy, and expanding the public sphere and creating structural racial equity. Today, our guests are Dr. Charlotte E.J., Director of Pupil, Personnel, and Diversity for the Parkway School District, Barbara Johnson, a former parents as teachers, educator, and an organizer with the MCU Education Task Force, and Lisa Thompson, also a former teacher and an organizer with MCU's Education Task Force. Today, we're gonna be talking about teaching the truth about American history and society in our schools. This has become a hot topic in the St. Louis region, in the state of Missouri, and all around the country. We'll talk about the pressure being put on school districts and the work educators do in teaching our kids in a multicultural world. Dr. EJ, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank
0: you, glad to be here. Can you just tell us about your position at Parkway School District? It's a very large district in Western St. Louis County. So what are you trying to make sure happens in Parkway for for your students?
1: Definitely want to make sure that every student, we have a diverse population of students, but making sure every student that walks into Parkway feel as if they are seen, they are heard, they are valued, and most of all, that they're celebrated. We welcome their culture. We want to make sure that that is one of the things that we look at. And we want to make sure that there's equity for all, no matter what religion, no matter what ethnicity or, or what differences we we have. So it's very, very important. We studied our schools and, and given out surveys and did a targeted evaluation to see if we really are being uh, equitable. And so we've been working on it. We've just finished, and, but, but it's been going on for two years. And so now we're, getting ready to
0: put everything in place uh, okay. to, to make sure that this happens. Okay, great. So when, when things are put in place, what aspects of the school are, are affected? The entire district. The entire district
1: is affected. And the good thing about it is that Parkway has been doing this work for over 20-some years. So we have been doing diversity work for a long time. And what I, we consider diversity work and just teaching and learning about each other so that every student feels as if they're, they belong. Uh, And it's, I must say, and I have to say this all the time, it is all about the student. For me, when I talk about any issue in Parkway, i envision the student in the center of the table. And that is who I am talking about. I wanna make sure that that student, those students feel as if this is their school district, just like everyone else. And so uh, we've been doing the work a long time. Um, what was happening for me is that, you still saw pockets pockets of gaps mm-hmm. in how many African-American students were being suspended, how many students of, of certain religions were not being uh, treated fairly, not fairly, but but had some negative kinds of comments made about them, those kinds of things. And so it just we just decided that we we're gonna look and see you know, why are these inequities still going on? Why are we having so many students in in elementary school being suspended? And that's what started the survey to see, where do we need to do, what do we need to do now? Everyone seems to be, we're talking all of this uh, information about equity and anti-bias and and getting in touch with our own conscious and unconscious bias, Um, but it should not be any any, uh, disproportionality in those groups. But it is, it was, and it is. And so uh, for me, it's the heart. And that's the part that I thought was missing. Being able to um, build sustainable um, relationships with our students. I mean, those that are not only positive relationships, but will sustain. The only way you can do that is to know your own uh, unconscious bias be aware of that, because we all have bias. So making sure we're, we're aware of that so that when we bump into something, we know where we went wrong. And our, we also train our students, so our students are very well equipped in knowing about uh, racial justice, about justice for, for students who live with a disability, and anything that is out of that quote unquote, and I put it in air quotes, out of the norm, because you know nothing is necessarily the norm. Um, but we definitely want to make sure our children are part of the entire system. They are part of the fabric of Parkway, uh,
0: Ms. Thompson. Um, at MCU, we're starting to use the term culturally responsive education. Where? Tell me what goes into to that term and how it might relate to what Dr. EJ is doing.
2: Culturally responsive education is what has always been in place for white children <laughs> because that was kind of the basis of the curriculum and our study of history and things. What we're trying to do is make sure like Dr. EJ said that every child sees themselves and their experiences in the curriculum of their classroom, that they see people that look like them in the pictures and the posters in the in the um, books and literature and that they see their experiences that they can relate to what is taught based on some of their own personal experiences so that and then that should be true for every child because we know that children that can identify with the curriculum and uh, that they feel like then that 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 school is a place for me. School is um, someplace that welcomes me and that I can feel comfortable and part of the community.
0: Mrs. Johnson, uh, tell me about why, why even talking to young children, um, it's important to start addressing these issues early. A lot of people seem to think that we need to hold back on topics like this. Uh, why do we need to talk to young children about these issues?
3: Well, it's really important to talk to young children because uh children are great imitators you know when they're when they're born and they're toddlers they're they're one year two year three year olds they're imitating what they see in their environment and what they hear then there's a critical turnaround around seven or eight when they start the brain develops that logic and reasoning and start asking questions, you know, then they want to know why you're doing that. You know, you know, mommy or daddy, what, why are you doing that? And what happens when you do this? So they start questioning their environment and the parents in the parents as teachers program. The, the standard is parents are, are the first and most important teacher of your child. So it's important that by the time they get into the school system, they have some basic understanding and logic about the world around them, their immediate world, which is inside of their family home, the outside world, which is outside of their home, no matter where that may be, and how to interact in those different environments. So starting early prepares your child for that. And our program especially emphasizes reading. Books are essential, and there are so many early childhood books from, from uh, prenatal, actually, all the way through that will address those kinds of issues in a very culturally acceptable uh, way in which we learn the, our young children about different cultures. And like the, uh, like the doctor was saying, We want each child to feel included in our educational system, but we also want to include those that we don't see in our educational system. You know, we don't see maybe a child from Thailand or from Burma or from these other regions, but we still need to educate our children on these different cultures. So starting early, using books, and there's so many wonderful books uh, early childhood books out there that does that exact thing talks about that culture and, and and includes their customs and their habits and their and their food and the lands they live in that your child might never see but still be aware that they're out there. And now we're more universally physically closer than than we ever have been. So your child might not necessarily see these cultures immediately in their environment, but at some point in their life, be it by, you know, their phone, because you'd be surprised how many little bitty kids I've seen in the grocery store with their parents' iPhone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're going to see some of these, uh, some of these things, and, and it's best for us to prepare them in a positive way, and there's so many ways to do that. Like Barbara, my
2: my background, my expertise is um, early childhood education, although I taught um, early childhood education to high school students in um, the technical high school. And um, so one of the things that sometimes was an issue, we were in Sunset Hills, and so a number of the children lived in that community, which is predominantly white. We had a number of Black high school students, and sometimes the children had not experienced, been around people that of color before. And um, so sometimes the children would say, why are you that color?" to a high school student? And the high school students would sometimes, because we live in rather segregated communities, would be shocked by that question. And often thought that that was because the child had been taught to be prejudiced, you know, but the fact is that children as young as two are noticing differences. And I would tell the children, so by talking about race and, and cultural differences, we're not introducing differences to children. They notice those things. That is how they learn. And I would tell the high school students, well, you're we're constantly asking children, what color is this? What color is that? Is that blue? Is that red? Is that green? Why would you think they wouldn't notice that your skin is a different color than their skin and that their parents skin? And so it's just a simple question and you need to answer it with a very confident, well, that's because. My parents were this color or because I have more melanin in my skin. And then you read a book about skin colors and and why different people have different skin colors and why they might look like their parents, why they might not look like their parents and things like that. So children are curious and that's how they learn about the world. And by not answering those questions, by making it seem like it's a taboo, we're doing more damage than by fully exploring the topics.
0: And I think that gets to the heart of one of the, one of the issues that's coming up these days is we, we have sort of this tension between uh, acknowledging and celebrating differences and acknowledging and celebrating our sameness. So where does continue that discussion about striking that balance?
1: I, I think, uh, you know, that, that's interesting that you say that because I think, Sometimes when people don't want to talk about race and they want, don't want to talk about ethnicities, uh, the differences, they, they will go to that side of we're more like than we are different. Mm-hmm. And you know, we might be, but it, so, what, so what I try to do is to, is to bring it back and say, we need to celebrate both. The mere fact that my friends are not all African-American like I am, that means that I'm enjoying the uh, idea of getting to know other people in other cultures. And but at the same time, I can still celebrate my difference. And uh, and, and I think that's really important for kids, especially because they you're you're so right, that they're, they're at such an early age they recognize differences and they want to talk about it. But I think it's the adult that they don't have the the language to say anything about it don't know how much to say about it and so then they'd kind of shy away from it but i think that conflict comes comes about because we have to look at things as both and it's a both and and it's important to celebrate the differences it's also important to celebrate what we have in common because we are a part all of us are part of this whole journey together and uh, that is so important to make that that distinction is that we can celebrate both. And I think that's why we have a lot of families that are going to ancestry and other places, I don't know any others, all I've seen on TV, but those kind of places to to, uh, look for their heritage. And they're not just all people of color. There are whites who are doing that, looking for where exactly and how many and who's in their family. And I think we should celebrate every piece of that, especially with our biracial students, And that is an issue because sometimes they feel they have to choose. And I'm constantly saying, you don't have to choose. You have this rich culture that belongs to both your father and your mother. Or, you know, and so we're gonna celebrate all of that. Once they do that, they feel better because they're they're constantly trying to figure out where do I fit? Well, you know what, you fit in more than just two places. (laughs) So that's why we say we call it biracial, but we, we
3: definitely lean toward multiracial. I think it's important, too, for parents to know where they are in their education as far as being able to guide their children. You know, if if you don't assess your, yourself when, you're, when your child asks you a question and you, you can't really answer it or you don't really Know which way to go, except maybe in a negative way, and and those people are going to go that way regardless, because that's their goal is to go that way. But to truly get the full value of that, you know, you have to assess where you are and then learn about it and then pass that on to your kids. And believe it or not, there are children's books that can learn you as an adult, you know, without going to the library and getting a an adult so-called book on whatever topic it may be that concerns racism. One of the great books, I had a big collection of children's books, but one of the ones that I kept And it's called All the Colors We Are. It's the story of how we get our skin color, which is what Lisa was talking about. It's so well done and it's so, so inclusive. So I think that's one of the things that we have to do as parents, as role models, as educators, as adult human beings, is to be able to constantly evaluate ourselves as to where we are. And like uh, someone mentioned, our own biases which we all seem to have in one way or another, whether it's you're too short, too tall, or whatever it may be. I was thinking of the other book, and
2: I'm sure you all know of that one too, is the Mem Fox book, Whoever You Are. And yeah. um, I, I love that it's it, what talking about similarities and differences, and it um, it has beautiful illustrations, and it talks about every day all over the world, children are laughing and crying. Um, they may look different than you. They may live in a different house than you. Um, they may speak a different language than you, uh, but inside they are just like you. And it talks mm-hmm. about different, it, it shows different houses, different you know, clothing, but then saying that, but we all hurt the same way. We all bleed the same way. Um, so, so we are all human at the core.
0: And Mrs. Johnson, you were going to say something about PBS.
3: Oh, that's another group. For me, it's a great learning avenue for adults. They have so many documentaries about all kinds of cultures and people around the world and here in the United States. I mean, so many topics that intersect with what we're talking about. And And it's PBS. It's free. It's it's a regular station. You don't need cable. You don't need any of those things to get that. So that's another learning way for adults to continue to educate themselves at home and, and really
0: dig into their own. It helps you to dig into your own biases as well. And that's a good transition. I wanted to talk now about one of the things that's come up in the current debate is, um, uh, training that goes on in the workplace. And specifically when we're talking about schools, that's taxpayer funded. And a lot of that is is uh, uh, recognizing your own bias. Um, and especially, I would say, for white teachers, administrators, and staff, there's probably extra work that that we need to do because the rest of the culture is, like uh, Ms. Thompson, you had said earlier, the rest of the culture is geared towards us. So we need to sort of do an extra step back. So why is that work important and and what are the consequences if that personal work isn't done by the people in the school district that have the authority? It's, It's truly important
1: and it's important because if I'm standing before the classroom and half of the class, the students in the class do not look like me. I need to recognize that I cannot just bring my cultural lens into the room, that I must recognize that everyone has a cultural lens. Not necessarily does it have to be negative or positive or any value to it, but it's just to recognize that it's important. This is how kids learn. This is how they learn to be critical thinkers. They learn from each other and they also can then transfer their learning to outside of the schools. So the the work in Parkway, I can say that we purposely do a lot of work and we include the community. We bring them in to do work, uh, our our parents and and people that are in our community, because they also need to know what we're teaching and what we're working with. Where it's not about, um, again, I go back to the, it's not an either or; it's a both and. I think when I walk into a classroom, I should bring my cultural lens as well. And I should then value those students who are, I'm Christian. So if I have a student who is Muslim or Jewish, I need to value those students' religions and have them to tell us if they want to, what what is different? What, What do you do for this holiday? What is that? And for me, what I do in my position is Every major holiday, religious holiday, I send out uh, an all district um, write up on that. For instance, um, you know, whether it's Passover or whatever religion it is, I, I send out what it is. And, and also to the teachers, I, I will say when, for instance, Ramadan comes around, I say that these students might be fasting. So if they do not stay in the cafeteria. Don't worry about that because they, they don't, they're praying. You they have to need some place to pray. Or if you're a Christian, it might be during the time when you are, are fasting because of something. So it, that's a way of saying to other kids, okay, this is what, and we don't have a problem with kids not being able to understand each other's religion because we want to talk about it. And, and, and that's just who we are. We are a diverse community and a diverse school district, as well as a diverse country. And so to me, that is what we call the tapestry. It would be very boring to have the same people all look alike and and not be able to celebrate all of those kinds of differences. So if we would be long, I would be lost. This, this work would be so hard if our teachers and administrators and the board, our board buys into um, the training of equity for all. Yes, right. uh, and also your, your, my superintendent buys into the equity for all and, and the training. It's important to have that from top down and mm-hmm. value that and also talk about how you were uh, brought up, what your uh, socialization was like when you were little. And so we have to share those things. And that's how you become all inclusive. Mm-hmm. That's how... You say, we are definitely going to make sure that every student feel as if they belong within this community, and it is their community.
2: I remember as a teacher, when I, my like I said, my background was early childhood. And then suddenly I had a job. I was teaching high school students. And um, I went to a training that was about uh, helping underperforming students. Um, you know, to um, help them increase their academic achievement. And one of the simple techniques I learned was um, like random responses where you might put everybody's name in a hat or on popsicle sticks or something. And then you would ask a question and give wait time because a lot of times as teachers, we know it's always those same kids that are like, Oh, 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 I know the answer. And, um, those kids may be the ones, you know, they may be the, the kids that feel the most comfortable in the room or they feel like um, they've just gotten a lot of positive response from schools. But we know that we can increase the learning of those who are not those kids um, by allowing some wait time, calling on kids um, more randomly rather than always allowing the same kids to answer the questions. And that was just a simple technique Um that had come up from research showing that teachers seemed or tended to pick the same kids all the time. And if you don't work to do things like that, then you do tend to reinforce patterns and biases that you may not even realize you have.
3: And children recognize it. The children who are in that situation, you know, they'll start labeling that person, that kid as a teacher's pet or the teacher's favorite. You know, which can diminish their participation and their self self self-esteem as well. So we have to as educators, I put a lot of pressure on educators because we should know we're the leaders, we're the ones who who have to fight for the equity and, and to make sure that every child uh, gets a fair assessment, a fair chance, and feel like they're all inclusive in our situation. So, and that goes from the school board on down. It's very important that we're all on the same page, that we all have the right information in order to convey that to parents when they come to the school board or to the superintendent or to the principals, that we're all on the same page with that. And I think that's where a lot of our educational system is weak in a lot of districts.
0: So so what what, what are the consequences for students if, if these things aren't in place? And specifically for for Ms. Johnson and Ms. Thompson, uh, when we talk, one of our big issues in MCU, of course, is breaking the school to prison pipeline. So so how how is that issue made worse by not having these practices in place? What What's sort of the cycle that happens?
2: Well, I think there's gradual, I, we know that even in preschool, um, children of color and especially black boys are expelled from even child care centers and preschools more often than um, white boys or white uh, children. And um, so I think that there's, if they, if children don't see themselves reflected in the classroom, if they don't feel accepted um, and, and feel valued uh, by the, adults in that classroom, as well as feel part of the community of that classroom and and the, uh, feel valued by the other children, there's there's a push out. It's, it's a gradual thing and it starts early. Um, but that idea that school's not for me, school's not made for me, I'm not comfortable there, I don't enjoy it there, I'm not learning things that are important to me. And so We see then more continued discipline um, issues, um, more uh, uh, lack, you know, higher dropout rates, lower graduation rates, and those kinds of things in the future. And um, there's not been a whole lot of research on culturally responsive education yet, but uh, that which has been done, has showed that, that um, it has made a difference. If kids see themselves represented and teachers are valuing their participation, that um, it does improve graduation rates and improve the, uh, or, or um, lower the, the discipline rate in the classroom, the incidence of discipline
3: issues. I think what well, Lisa is saying is absolutely correct. But even though there's not a lot of research done on that issue, as you as you mentioned, we as, as people of color, we knew the issue because <clears throat> we end up with the results in our home. Because what happens to your child in the classroom, they bring that. That that feeling of inferiority, that feeling of not being heard, not being seen, not being valued, it comes home with that child. In the past, many years ago, people of color, especially African-Americans, put so much faith in the teachers in the classroom, no matter what color they were. So when that child would come home feeling that way and or either the the teacher or the teachers would say, well, you know, James is not doing this and he's not doing that. Well, when James got home, he got it from home, too. So that made their emotional development, intellectual development, even that much more stymied. Mm-hmm. until parents learn, you know, that, oh, okay, maybe they're not doing exactly what they need to do with my child. So they started to having more, uh, trying to have more input into the schools, into their, the what's happening with their child in school. And and remember back in the day, uh, there was a lot of, uh, oh, your child wants his steal, So they put them on medication. So that had a negative effect also. You know, at school and at home. So there was a lot of a lot of dynamics going on that helped to push those children into out of school and into criminal justice system. And I was going to say, we're, we're
1: having uh, Dr. Holly, Shrocky Holly, who um, teaches about culturally and linguistically responsive teaching And we'll be working with all of our schools, but starting off with at least six schools and with everybody at the beginning in in August. And a part of what he says about vabbing, validating, affirming, and then building bridges. So um, he's gonna be working with all of the, the, the teachers and we'll send coaches in to work with them about how to recognize culture. And you know, what is sometimes in the culture Uh, is not necessarily of the culture or what's not yet. So what you see is not always what it is. So teachers need to understand that, that that, that this is not of the culture. And even if it was, if it's unacceptable in your classroom, it has to be unacceptable. The issue with the prison, uh, the school, the prison pipeline is that our students as young as kindergarten will be sent to the office when you see our little black, uh, black boys. And I refuse to use the word male because male, when we say black males, mm-hmm. that could indicate a three-year-old and it could also indicate a 30-year-old. Right. There, so because our kids become, a, that adultification in mm-hmm. black boys comes a lot quicker than it does for white boys. Yes. And when, so when they're in kindergarten and first grade, what a black boy will do and a white boy would do the same thing. If I am a teacher that's unaware of my own cultural bias and my own racial bias, I am going to see that behavior as being worse in a black boy if I'm a white teacher. And I'm going to make sure that student is sent out of the office. So why do we have kids sit out of the office? Because they are misunderstood. They do not feel as if they belong. They start to act out because they know you don't like them. Right. There's some that you don't like. So something is going on. So we have a gap. A lot of times our black boys will act out because they're trying to get attention because they know that you are, you, you really don't like them. And, and I've had kids that young tell me that. Right. So-and-so doesn't like me. Right. And how do you know that, you know, and, and will prove it to me. Yeah. And it's not so much as that they didn't start okay. out liking the child. It's just, they don't understand and don't know the, the children. And so when you don't know the culture, then that will happen. But the sad part about it that really gets me is that as you suspend little black boys in kindergarten and then first grade and then second grade, and that suspension could be not sending them home, but putting them in a timeout in the office for 35, 45 minutes for two hours. That to me, as long as you are, taken away, you are being taken away from the teaching and learning environment, then you are being suspended. And so therefore, after several years, then we wonder why our kids are not reading on level. Because they come in extremely, some of them come in extremely bright because they come in. With all the things that their parents, you know, the aunts and the uncles, you know, Johnny is so smart. He's so this and he's so that. And he comes in feeling very good about who he is. But when he gets into the classroom, he notices that there's a group of kids that know more. For instance, he might know about an ocean, but he might not have even been to an ocean. So it's not necessarily an achievement gap. It's an opportunity, a gap. Absolutely. So if you haven't had the opportunity to build these all of these different um, abilities to know what if what sand feels like when it runs through your hand and what an ocean, how big is the ocean? You've never been there. So you don't see that. Then I suggest the teachers that you show pictures and you talk about it with all students as if no student has been, has been there. So, in other words, instead of meeting the stu- starting teaching kindergarten at the to the 75 students. That have that have had all those great opportunities. Start showing pictures while you're talking about those opportunities. That these kids bring in some rocks, bring in some some uh, seashells. Let them feel it. Bring in some sand. There's ways to introduce that into the classroom. But these kids, that's why they fall behind. Once they fall behind, then we ask them to take the the map test in third grade, right? Yeah. What what happens? You know of course there's going to be a gap. Why? Because they have holes in their education. Why? Because they've been suspended. Why? Because you don't understand the culture. So it's always that, and you have to go back and back and back. But it's, it's always about how do you show up in the classroom, teacher, and how do you expect all of your students to show up? And then when do you know the difference between how they should show up and how they do show up? which side are you going to accept
0: as being the right way? Okay, great. Thank you. And I want to shift the discussion a little bit now to the hot button phrase that's been going around, uh, especially here in St. Louis uh, County, really, more than any place else. And that's critical race theory. Uh, The term seems to have two different definitions. One's the academic definition and one's the political definition. So can I ask, any of you to, to, to tell us the difference, how, how it, how, what, what the phrase actually means and then how it's being used politically. We know that critical
1: race theory was, was um, uh, developed in the seventies. We know that. And we also know that um, it was used in mainly in law schools and also um, higher education. It was part of that critical thinking
3: mm-hmm.
1: Here's the thing. I don't know of any schools in the area that's teaching quote unquote, critical race theory, because it would be very difficult to teach that K through 12. However, what, what, what concerns me is that it's used as the boogeyman, the C, the critical and the race theory, all three of those words are words that drum up fear in people who really don't know what it's all about. So what we have to do, it's interesting that what what it's boiled down to is that they've taken the concept of critical race theory as being this thing that they think people are teaching, which Parkway is not teaching that, and no other school district that I know of not teaching critical race theory. And so, but they take that and they say, well, that is the same as equity and inclusion, and it's not, it's not the same. We are, critical race theory is talking mainly about being able to theorize what happened uh, in this country from slavery on and why it's still still there and, and looking at it from a legal perspective and things of that sort. But at the same time, we have to make sure that this state does not stop us from doing what we need to do to make sure kids feel as if they are valued. When, when um, I, I think about during Jim Crow, because I grew up during, during Jim Crow, and integration started. Integration then, we lost over almost a million Black teachers during that time because you had a choice. Uh, the school, white parents had a choice as to whether or not they wanted a black teacher to teach their children. So a lo- we lost a lot of teachers because they could no longer teach. And so that was a, a, a really, that was a negative part thing in itself. So when we think about why we need to create, to, to uh, ensure that our students know who they are and that they're valued, every one of them, is because if we don't, we have 85%, 90% or higher white teachers teaching 50% or 45% of the students who are from other ethnic groups. And so that is going to be a negative all on its own. Kids don't know who they are. They don't know, they don't, they're not feeling as if they are um, appreciated or valued or understood. So then you're going to have the same thing that's going on, that's been going on for generations. And when we talk about socialization, how we were socialized, that's, that stuff has been passed on from generation to generation to generation. The only way we're gonna take that path to liberation and not repeat the cycle of this racism uh, is we talk about our true history. I think about the Holocaust and, um, our Jewish sisters and brothers. The one thing that they did was to say, never forget. We will never forget. And they are still planning, even after the last Holocaust survivor is alive, they will have that history continue to pass on because they're doing videos and doing, uh, asking questions and answering questions while they're still living. Why would they want to do that? So you never repeat history especially if it's negative, you don't repeat it again. And so what did Germany do? What they did was to make sure we never ever kill an innocent person again. And that's why they changed their penal system. So everybody learns from the mistakes they make. In this country, we just kind of cover, cover them up. We don't want to talk about slavery or, or what I consider enslaved people there because they were considered property, but these were African people. So when you think about that, um, kids need to know. I used to wonder, how could people hate to the extent that they're so racist now that they're they're still at that level in terms of being racist that they could continue to let these things happen? Uh, And it's because they don't know any better because that cycle has continued to be repeated. So we do need to make sure that those who are hearing this word, this, this, this critical race theory or CRT, that it is for creating fear and the fear of loss of position, of power, that that scares a lot of people. And it's not happening, it's not happening. What's happening in schools is that we're teaching all kids to love who you are, respect each other, and have a sense of belonging and know that there's no one greater than you and no yeah. one less than you are.
3: I think that the critical race theory that are embraced by people um, who are making it the boogeyman per se, or the same people who made everything the boogeyman as far as race is concerned, okay? So if it wasn't for critical race theory being taught in a higher level, especially of of law students, which is where it originated, uh, Dr. Derrick Bell, when he was teaching at Harvard, decided his students came to him, his black students came to him because they didn't see anything in their law books or anything that related to them and the law and how it was affecting black people in our society. So the critical race theory examines social, cultural, and legal uh, issues primarily related to race and racism in the United States. So if, if lawyers are out there defending people like our children, our black children and brown children, and they can't connect it to why, because our laws, our legal system was created during the enslavement period and has graduated to what it is now, which is basically built off of punishing black and brown people. So critical race theory and critical learning uh, systems was put in place in order to do just that, to protect and to fight for uh, the rights of, of marginalized people up to this very day. So we're going to see that pushback because that's part of the American system. These are some of the same people who embrace uh, uh, white supremacists, who embrace yeah. um, you know, a neo-Nazi who, who are embracing the event that happened in our capital, January the 6th. And that's something we have to realize. And that's something we have to accept because that's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for marginalized people. We're fighting for our children in the classroom and out of the classroom. I'd
1: like to just give this proverb. Uh, it's an African proverb and it sort of addresses this. And it says, until the story of the hunt is told by the lion, The tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. Exactly. That has been the issue. Hmm. The story has never been told in America. The true story has never been told. And our children are not responsible. Our students are not responsible for what happened. But as citizens, they are responsible. All students are responsible for ensuring that this never happens again. But if they don't know the story of the actual
3: lion, how then will they be able to keep that from happening again? And that's because the stories have, been, have tried to be told. The stories yes. have been deliberately suppressed and oppressed and hidden. And it's taking people like us MCU and educators like yourself to constantly dig for the stories to put them out there. There was a time when I was growing up and go to the library, I didn't see any books about African-Americans and our true history. Now they're everywhere because we have, we the people that are in this fight to do the right things, to expose the right history of all of us, not just us as African-Americans, but Asian-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, uh, Latino, all, all of our cultures have a story that has been hidden by the powers of this country. And that's what they've always been there. But they've been deliberately hidden just the way that people now are trying to take the CRT and make it a, a racial issue. And it's not. Mm-mm. It's a critical thinking issue. And we want our children and our adults to think critically. Mm-hmm. Uh, or do you want to fall in line in footsteps with people that that were terrorists at our capital? That is a shame and a scourge on America. I, I
2: wanted to go back to something Dr. EJ said about that we didn't mention before, but why is why is it important that teachers have this diversity and inclusive inclusion training? Um, you mentioned 95% of the teaching uh, populate faculty are not are white, and so we're dealing with children who are not going to see themselves reflected in their teacher. They need to see it in their curriculum, but also those teachers, when they are teaching truthfully the whole history of the United States, the good and the bad, um, and they're having conversations with children, Um, parents can choose to follow this rage and, and anger. And then a child brings home maybe something they misunderstood or they misheard or they're confused about. And the parent may jump to a conclusion about what the teacher taught. And Working with early childhood, you know a lot of times what children say isn't quite exactly what happened. And um, so, you know, I think rather than getting angry and jumping and going and yelling at the school board about what's being taught in the classroom, you know, just, I don't know any teachers who go into teaching hoping to, uh, to make a group of children feel bad about themselves. Most of that, if it happens, is unintentional. It's, it's, you know, it's hidden bias, but we don't, we also don't want to be jumped on when we're trying to have, we need to make sure that we're, teachers are trained to have conversations, um, but that also parents come to teachers honestly and say, this is what my child said at home. I'm confused. What's going on? And hear what happened and hear the teacher's side. And Then certainly, like if a parent came to me with a misunderstanding from a child, I would be horrified that I let that child feel bad about themselves. I want to address that and change that perception. So, you know, I I think there are always misunderstandings. And rather than trying to catch people doing the wrong thing, we need to help them do the right thing by being partners for the children and their learning and um, being accepting, learning to be accepting of all people.
3: I think that's why it's really important for the school board on down, the superintendent, the principals, and and the teachers, that hierarchy on down, be strong in what they know, and be able to deal with that as a unit when it comes at them. and not just sit there and look dumbfounded like some of these board members look at least based on some of the news i've seen it, you have to be able to put up a strong front of what you know as an educator and what you're doing in your system from the top down so i think that's really critical and that way teachers in the classroom won't feel that vulnerability if a parent comes to them because they know they 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 have someone has their back in what they're doing absolutely and i think too, that uh, it, it's, an, it's imperative
1: that the board, your, your board of education leads the charge in terms of being okay with teaching um, equity for all kids. And I am, I am just, I'm so blessed to have that in Parkway because the board, board is part of the, the learning, even they, they, they set on our equity in action uh, committee um, as and, and worked for hard to see what we need to do to make sure all kids are treated equ- equitably, and so that's really important. And it's really important to have your your superintendent and your your principals also leading the work in their building. So you know everyone has a long way to go, but I have never met any, and I go to conventions all the time on social justice and and. Um, race and racism. And let's face it, you know, we know that race is a a social construct, but we know that racism is real. It's real. And so we have to be very, very aware of that. But when we think about what we are doing, we have to put that child in the center of the room of that table
2: Yes,
1: when we're making decisions. If we have a student that's in a wheelchair and that happens with me one time, and he wanted to be on the, committee where you, the leaders who spoke with the superintendent once a month. And because he was in a wheelchair and we didn't have an elevator in the building, I was told that he couldn't, he couldn't uh, participate by the building. And I said, by the school, and I said, no, uh, he, we, we'll get him downstairs. We will get him downstairs. I need his voice. We need his voice. And so that was the last time I ever heard that he, he could, went, went on and continued to be a, a powerful voice for all groups of people. And that's what we have to do. We have to put the child in the center. We can't say no. We can't say no, we can't meet that child's need. Equity does not look the I should, you know, when we talk about equality, making sure, being, giving everybody the same thing is not necessarily what is needed. Giving each child what he or she needs, that then becomes equitable. That's equity, that, that's when you're talking about equity. So every child individually, when I look at a kid, I got to think I'm looking at this kid and these are the concerns that I have for this child. That's not getting their needs met. But that's all kids. Every one of our students in every school school district should be able to come and say, I need so-and-so and and I know that they're going to understand why and they are going to help me have access to that.
0: And, and when you put the child in that position, they then have the power to, to succeed going forward.
1: Absolutely. And, and
0: I think that's one of the things we always miss is that you know, when you, when you give that child who needs to be on that other floor access, they now can take it from there. And so you've, you've provided that platform for, for them to, to even grow further. I think you guys also touched on, on sort of the heart of, of what's happening right now. You said that the support needs to come from the board. The board is the elected group in this whole equation. And that's where the push is coming, is at the board level. I think what we need to be aware of is that the folks pushing this uh, uh, elimination of teaching the truth in our schools are going for those board seats. Mm -hmm. So next spring, when, when, when school board elections come up, that that's where this is really going to get um, um, heated um, because this is about a group that does not want to give up power, finding that a place they can solidify power is on a school board. And if your school board changes, uh, then your administration will probably change. And if the administration changes, then the policy down the road changes.
1: I will say, um... That's interesting that you say that because you know this is not the first time that this has been pushed back, and that uh, people who believe these lies about what's going on in the classroom, out in the community, they will push to be on the board, and we had that we had that happen with through somehow three years four years ago, where they were trying to get on the board in in Parkway, parents got together and decided. These are who these people are, and this is what they're trying to do. And we need to, all our parents need to rally together and and, and make sure that this does not happen. And I tell you, within that night, just that particular night, they had thousands of people signed up on that, uh, the medium, uh, uh, Facebook. And they went forward and they fought and they pushed to make sure they got out there, they walked the streets, they put up signs um, and I'm telling you, it was very successful. But that's why you need, we need each other. We do not, we are not supposed to be separated. I need white allies and, and, and people who will go forth and do those types of things and also pull other parents of color along with them as well. But it is, the, the, it, to me, it was the most exciting thing I had ever seen. And uh, it really gives you that sense of hope and that sense of um, everybody knows that our children are important. They, they don't need to be squelched and told that they, they cannot think a certain way. They, we are creating critical thinkers so they can go out and make decisions and they can transfer their learning so um, it has happened, it will happen again, I'm sure. But any school district that I know of where parents are very, very strong, will get behind it and they will push it and it will work.
3: Okay. I, I agree. I think, I think the doctors made a very good point. Grassroots organization exposing these people
1: mm-hmm.
3: in, in as many mediums as we possibly can. At least, at least you'll know the full story of who they are and what their agenda is. And then being able to get that information out, I think is very powerful. And I think organizations like ours is, is an example of of that and, and what we and the work that we do. I also put a lot of and maybe maybe I shouldn't, but I put a lot of uh, uh, responsibility on Desi. You know, you know what what what's your role in this as, as an educated body? governing over all of these, other, these school districts? What is your responsibility in making sure that uh, that the true history of, of the United States and, and of, of other cultures is being taught and these other, these other factions don't come in and take over again, and, and some still do. These, this way of teaching exists still in many classrooms across the United States. You know, the governor of Texas, the governor of Florida, they're mandating all of these things against teaching history, not critical race theory, but history. So if we if, if that governing body, you know, isn't being responsible to help in, intercede and put their voice out there to say, hey, we as this governing body, Desi, is, we're saying that critical race theory is not taught whatever their format is to put out there, that's what they should do.
0: Okay, great. And Ms. Johnson, your uh, uh, call to action, I think, for us in the coming months, as we as we approach the legislative uh, session in January, where this is going to be brought up, where this is going to be pushed, we're going to have to show up and we're going to have to show up strong. Yes. Um, so, Connect with us here at MCU. Absolutely. Connect with the people in your school district that that feel the same way as you, because being present as, at those school board meetings, as Dr. EJ had said, is, is so very, very important. Um, because uh, if we don't speak up, someone else is gonna speak up instead. So I'm gonna go ahead and wrap us up. So I wanna thank our guest today, Dr. Charlotte EJ, Director of People, Personnel, and Diversity for the Parkway School District, Barbara Johnson, a former Parents as Teachers Educator, an organizer with MCU Education Task Force, and Lisa Thompson, also a former teacher and organizer with the MCU Education Task Force. To learn more about MCU, go to Metropolitan Congregations United's website at mcustlewis.org. And also be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. I'm Kevin Prang and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time and thank you for listening.